Hey everybody and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here with Dr. Wiggy and a very special guest today, Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to Healthy Discourse. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to join America's leading couple. (laughs) (laughs) You're so sweet to us. You're so sweet to us. We are here in Texas at CPAC. It's been a really busy couple days, especially for Dr. McCullough. And we are so grateful that he's carving out a few minutes to talk to us on the show today. And many of our listeners are huge fans of Dr. McCullough, as are we. And um, But we don't want to be his fans. We want to be his friends. And so we've gotten to know him a little bit more. And his story is phenomenal and how he has been committed to treating patients, to standing for truth, for knowing the data like no one I've ever met in my life, how the facts can just come off his tongue one after the other, (laughs) the data, and um, just such an inspiration to so many of of the nation's doctors, especially our doctors in North Carolina, who we work with. And so wanted to kind of take it below the surface a little bit today to talk about not all of that data, but kind of just the situation at hand. Yesterday, you made a couple of really great points about the language and things that are happening in our culture. And there's just so much that seems to be happening below the surface. Um, And so let's just dig in a little bit to that. You want to say anything, Wade, before we start? No, thank you so much for, for coming on. You know, it, is, it really is a, is a privilege. And I'll just use this opportunity again just to thank you for being so courageous and for doing uh, all that you've done. Uh, we also can use this time to, to plug his book, uh, The Courage to Face COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic book. Uh, Emily read it out to be out loud. I did. I read uh, it out loud to Wiggy while we were in the car. While we're driving. And... Uh, <laughs> And it was fantastic. Not the Great whole thing. Story. I don't think I, I don't think I could have read the whole thing out loud, but I read a lot of it to him. So yeah, and and the nice thing about that book, it is a story, mm-hmm. which is I think what we kind of want to talk about today is kind of the story, some of the background, you know, your motivation, kind of those types of things as far as and what keeps you going. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a good question to, to start off with is kind of what 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 kind of started this all off for you and and uh, what kind of keeps you going. You know, unlike so many other people, I didn't see this coming. Mm. Uh, I viewed my life as just progressing right on schedule. You know, I've been married 35 years and my children are grown. My daughter is a young entertainment attorney in LA and she zipped right through undergraduate and law school and passed the California bar and I'm very proud of her, a single young attorney uh, in LA, which she wants to live there. And uh, that's great. My son uh, had uh, finished four years at Baylor where I attended undergrad. He was NCA All-American, um, uh, academic All-American in mm-hmm. long distance running. He's become uh, ranked in the world in the half Ironman. Uh, went to University of Texas at Houston Medical School, got in, uh, doing great in medical school, mm-hmm. and now he's in his fourth year. And uh, in many ways, you know, married, two kids, kids are successful. Uh, my parents uh, were retired in East Mobile Bay, Fairhope, Fair Alabama. They were enjoying retirement. My wife's parents uh, were in Toronto, Ontario, where they had lived for many years after uh, immigrating from uh, uh, former Palestine, Israel, to Toronto. Uh, everything was good there. And then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when the pandemic hit, I... We'll never forget here in Dallas, in fact, we could look across to, to my office, uh, I would just remember a whole series of things that just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And that just from the very beginning, a beautiful bright day like today, 
we had closed the cardiac catheterization laboratories. We had closed the operating room. Uh, we had a whole team of fellows and residents. We sent them home. We didn't know what to do. There weren't any patients. Closed the clinics down. And we just sat there and the parking lots were empty. You know, where's the tsunami of patients that are gonna come, you know, bowling into Dallas, Texas in March and April and nothing happened. So I, I had time, number one. Mm. But number two, I felt compelled uh, to prepare for this. I had a sense, and I remember telling my wife, I said, either this is going to be the biggest blowover that we've ever seen. It's something that's just mm-hmm. been overblown. There have been other things that we had been in Dallas here a few years ago. And Ebola, we actually mm-hmm. had Ebola mm-hmm. in Dallas. A few cases over at Presbyterian Hospital, and we were following things very carefully. And it didn't become a contagion. The whole city didn't get Ebola. So I was thinking to myself, maybe this is going to be like Ebola. It's just going to blow over. Then we started to hear more news out of Wuhan and Milan, and we started realizing, wait a minute, this is really going to hit. And then our first patient uh, landed at DFW Airport from uh, New York. He's 56 years old. He's hospitalized at our hospital. Mm. And then we just watched what happened. I mean, the Mm. virus literally took over his body. He went into respiratory failure, went on the Mm. ventilator, and his blood pressure crashed and couldn't save him, 56 years old. Then we started to say, wait a minute, this yeah. is serious. We started to see the serious outcomes. And I'll never forget on a couple Bible studies, which we, we actually converted our Bible study to mm. uh, WebEx or Zoom. I never forget, I just got emotional and I broke down. I said, this is, you know, this is the fear of this coming is, mm. is, um, is, is, is overwhelming. And that some of our ICU doctors and others, they just broke down and part mm. of it was the fear of what was coming and part of it was the fear that we ourselves could lose our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, I think the whole medical establishment, it was kind of that. I mean, where we live, it was that same way. It's like, we're, we're here, we're waiting, we're going to see what happens. We've cleared the hospitals, we've shut everything down. And when you think about that, what does that breed in individuals and people watching their televisions and the doctors that are sitting there waiting it, it, it's it's the fear it breeds fear as we sit and wait for this um to know what it is and what are we going to do about it and can we do anything about it and that kind of thing and of course at that time well there's nothing that can be done that's what we we're told but you went to work to figure out what could be done I did, and you know that one of the challenges was we couldn't meet with anybody, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So church was closed, mm-hmm. Bible studies were closed, uh, shopping malls, uh, hospitals. Immediately, was a room a rule at our hospital that not more than ten people could be in a room. So quickly, we didn't meet anymore. There wasn't any grand rounds. We didn't even have any conferences. We mm-hmm. shut down uh, conferences to even discuss cases. Mm-hmm. And that threw things, I think, in a direction we've never been in medicine. People started to retract. And I'll never forget when the uh, the act came out by executive order that doctors could do their entire care by telemedicine at home. Mm-hmm. And boy, did the doctors in academic medicine grab that. Mm-hmm. Do you know there are some doctors today looking out at my medical school at UT Southwestern. Uh, there are doctors today who still don't see patients in the office. Mm. They're still on WebEx. Mm. And as a cardiologist, I'm telling you, we have to listen to the heart. I have to talk to people. I'm dealing with heart failure and other conditions. I need to examine them. Mm -hmm. And it is impossible for valvular disease, cardiomyopathies, heart failure, to do it by WebEx, in my view. It's very, very difficult. And sure, I did some uh, telemedicine. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you did too. Uh, We all did. But this complete conversion to telemedicine forever, 
mm-hmm. uh, I think has sent medicine in a direction where there's less collaboration, there's less interchange of information, and now we've seen a, really, I think, a terrible word emerge uh, through our government agencies, through social media, uh, and that is the word misinformation. Mm-hmm. And one yeah. of the things Wiggy and I did today on several interviews is we basically said, listen, the word misinformation in medicine shouldn't exist. Right. It doesn't exist. In fact, what exists are scientific data, findings, observations. And there's always two or more points of view. And those points of view help to shape our understanding and the interchange allows the medical advancement progressing towards the truth. But no one holds agency over the truth. No one has a license over the truth. No one holds truth and someone else doesn't hold truth. Those are mechanisms by which people are applying forms of discrimination. Right. And then censorship and reprisal, those are the tools of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Propaganda is false information put forward by those in position of authority in order to achieve power and control. Right. Yeah, and, and it's working. You know, I think that we're seeing that more just from the community, but primarily from doctors that are kind of using that angle to say that this is misinformation. Uh, I've heard from multiple patients that have said, well, I went to go see my other doctor about this particular thing, and they were explaining some of the natural things that we were doing either for COVID or for long-haul syndrome. And then the doctor would say, well, that's not science. Mm-hmm. You know, or saying like, we have, we know what science is, this is the science, and if you don't do that, then, th- then that's not science. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is a frustrating thing where there is this one opinion, one narrative, and then anything outside of that is considered misinformation and not science, mm-hmm. which I do feel like that is, that's, that's not appropriate because then we're not able to have discussions. We're not able to figure out what the true science really is if automatically you're saying someone that that is not science. And we're not able to develop the art. Mm-hmm. Medicine is both an art and a science. I was just about to say that. You were, you Discourse, right art, and science. <laughs> you know, medicine is an art and a science. Mm-hmm. And that is the hardest thing for people to ultimately hold both yeah. as equally valuable. A, a doctors or a nurse or a medical assistant, their intuition, their ability to interact and to uh, uh, have compassionate care rendered is so critical. And early on, in a, it's a novel coronavirus. It's novel. Right. That means nobody knows the playbook. And so the principles there shift much more towards the art that mm. is caring for someone. One of the things we didn't get to to our interview today, but I firmly believe that so many of the hospitalizations were unnecessary. They were out of panic Mm. because patients thought no one cared about them. Mm. They didn't know what was going to happen. There was a flurry of phone calls between loved ones who couldn't see them because they were in isolation and finally get to a point and say, Mama or Papa, why don't you just go to the hospital? Mm. And then they're stuck. Once they're in the hospital, they're captured and they're terrified. They're in isolation. The doctors don't see them. The nurses barely see them. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know when they're going to get yeah. out. It's very difficult. This happened in my family. And I remember you're know, trying to communicate with my dad and, and all the messiness of they were wearing hazmat suits. And my poor dad has 
COVID and we're, we're trying to do a FaceTime and I barely see his face for, uh, it had to be 15 seconds and then his thumb hit the button and then it went away. Mm-hmm. And then I never saw him again. Right. Through the entire time of COVID, I think I saw my father for 15 seconds or less. And I can tell you so many people listening to this had the same experience. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them had the experience where their loved ones who should have come out of the hospital didn't. And we have, you know, personal friends and examples of that um, that are just the most heartbreaking stories, even um, including a, a family that it was a, 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 mo- a mom went in, she had COVID, she gave, they did an emergency C-section to deliver the baby. The baby did fine. The mom passed away. And now that sweet friend of ours is a 30-year-old single dad with a newborn baby. Yeah. And well, um, We have an experience in our family mm-hmm. of, of that very soon. This is very early on in the pandemic, very early on in March of 2020. Uh, on my wife's side, 32-year-old uh, woman who's a pharmacist. A wonderful pharmacist. She's working at CVS or Walgreens, probably having lots of exposure, people coming in coughing, yeah. not knowing what's going on. Seven months pregnant. Uh, develops a fever. Now fever, a high fever, is a precipitant for a premature delivery. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. known. So sure. it's, it's a it's a determinant. And sure enough, she had a high fever, comes into actually University of Michigan Medical Center, great place in Ann Arbor, delivers the baby precipitously, and then mom goes on to have a respiratory illness on the mechanical ventilator and dies. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so back then it wasn't similar. known. The tests weren't that good. So the test never really confirmed COVID, but mm. the question is, what else could it be? Uh, her husband never saw her again. Uh, baby never got to know the mother. Parents never got to see their daughter mm-hmm. who passed away again. Yeah. Those, those are, uh, you know, my wife's relatives, mm-hmm. and that's how this thing started. This, the, the fear, and and the incredible um, tension uh, that developed around this, and just, and just the discussion was yeah. absolutely uh, extraordinary in, in our family. There's nothing that can inject fear mm-hmm. into a family unit more than a tragedy like this. And in our book, uh, Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex is a case of uh, uh, Miss Carroll. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is later on in the pandemic, uh, but this case I think basically uh, summarizes what's happened in so many cases this is a woman in her early 70s. She's perfectly healthy. She has a daughter, Jody Carroll, and Jody is not married and doesn't have any children. And in her world, her mother is yeah. big. Jody's mom is admitted to a hospital here in Central Texas after at least three times seeking early treatment and she's turned down. Mm-hmm. by a variety of doctors and ERs. Nope, nope, you're not sick enough. Just come back when you're sick enough. Mm-hmm. Well, she does come back when she's sick enough and she's hospitalized and she's put on the ventilator and she's getting very minimalistic treatment. Yeah. And uh, the daughter reaches out to me and says, Dr. McCullough, what else could be done? I said, well, the principle of medication reconciliation should apply. I mean, we use drugs in sequence combination as an outpatient they should be received as an inpatient. Mm-hmm. We could even start with monoclonal antibodies. With monoclonal antibodies, you know, there are now papers published, uh, one in JAMA recently by Huang and colleagues, that shows that the 15% of people who are hospitalized that actually got monoclonal antibodies as an outpatient, they did great. They survived the hospitalization. Yeah. Yeah. Every single hospitalized person in the United States should have been offered monoclonal antibodies. She wasn't offered those. 
um, uh, the other drugs, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, the nutraceuticals, supplements, mm-hmm. aspirin, colchicine. Uh, we use uh, antibiotics largely secondarily, but yeah. they have some antiviral effects, azithromycin, doxycycline, um, inhaled budesonide, uh, and we're in, in the level of the hospital, full dose blood thinners. So there basically was a list of things that I gave Jody, and I said, listen, if, if I was the doctor managing an inpatient, I would do these things. Yeah. And I listed them out, about seven things. One of them actually just included full-dose aspirin. We know that, uh, uh, that this illness is a tremendously thrombogenic, blood clot-forming illness. Mm-hmm. So uh, instead of baby aspirin, we use full-dose aspirin. Well, she goes to the doctors and like, no, we're not going to do anything. Yeah. So n- no shared decision-making. This is an ethical principle of sharing in the decision-making. Doctors said, no, no, we're following the protocol. Mm-hmm. That's it. And the protocol mm-hmm. basically came down from uh, the uh, National Institutes of Health protocol. Top down. We, yeah. Which is, a protocol is, NIH protocols are fine when they're available, but as a minimum base standard of which we do additional things, mm-hmm. there isn't a single American College of Cardiology protocol that I use as my standard of care. I always build upon that. That's yeah. fine. But yeah. no, they were going to do nothing more than the protocol. So she gets a lawyer and they go to court. And when they go to court, she said, you know, I want more than that from my mom. I want more than the minimum standards. The hospital hires external counsel, important point. Hospitals always have in-house counsel. Mm-hmm. No, they hire outside counsel. Mm. And the outside counsel tells the judge, don't you dare uh, practice medicine from the bench. We know mm. what we're doing. She's our patient. We're going to make the decisions, even down to not giving her a full dose of aspirin, mm. even down to huh. not giving her full dose blood thinners. So what happens to Miss Carol? She gets worse and worse and worse. Mm. And then she dies. Mm. And then they get an autopsy. The lungs are full of blood clots. Yeah. Yeah. And so this young woman loses her mother because the doctors refuse to give a higher full level of care for this fatal illness. The question on the table is, what is in the minds of those doctors? That, that's yeah. a great question. Well, and I think, you know, sharing these examples, it's, it's helpful to hear them because I think it, it, is, it helps us to keep going, you know, as, as providers and as doctors to keep taking care of patients because we are hearing the atrocities of when they're not treated early and the way that they are oftentimes handled, handled in the hospital. Would you, hold, would you say that that's what you hold on to more than anything else as far as what kind of keeps you keeps you going and keeps you driven because you know to be honest you you face so much persecution so much censorship so much canceling uh, over the past past year that we all need to hold on to something and I think that you know that the sanctity of life you know that's that's a big one I think there's oftentimes a faith component to what keeps us keeps us going what would you say is the the motivating factor for you to keep you motivated and pushing and continue to fight against these things? You know, through the course of the pandemic, I met with my pastor three times. And uh, uh, he told me on one occasion, he said, your nature is you're going to try to save everybody Mm. because people are going to start reaching out to you from all over the country. And they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, from the moment I appeared on Fox News or on Tucker Carlson or, um, you know, all the big programs, Joe Rogan, People knew Dr. McCullough could do something about this illness. So they're going to reach out to me. And they, the calls poured in from all over the country. And what my pastor says, you're going to try to save everybody. 
He says, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. Christ couldn't save everybody. Mm. He said, but what Christ was here for on earth was to deliver a message. Mm. He said, what you have been chosen to do is to deliver a message. Mm. And that stuck with me. That's good. Yeah. Because it's Powerful. the message. It's the message. The message of hope. Mm-hmm. The message of compassion. The message that we care for one another and we can get through this. Right. We can get through all of this. And the first wave of it was the respiratory infection. Mm-hmm. And now I think the second wave of it is the mass vaccination program, which yeah. has spiraled out of control and gone so bad. Well, I mean, just yesterday, as we were talking, that sweet gentleman came up and showed us a picture of his young military, what she's 19 year old daughter, who he had a picture of her and she had done her military fitness test, nearly scored perfectly, I think he said a few days before, and she died a couple weeks after her first vaccine. And I don't know how they classified her death, but I'm going to guess that it's probably not classified as vaccine injury. Mm, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that is often talked about as far as character goes is when, especially with the, pay, uh, the doctors that are treating this, is courage. And I think courage definitely uh, would apply here. But I think that another characteristic that I see with a lot of the providers that are willing to, to treat and to stand up and speak is there's also an element of self-sacrifice that I'm willing to risk my career, my livelihood, because I feel like it's the right thing to do to take care of patients, because we see what happens if they're, if, if they're not offered anything. And I think that's where, I think for you, there's definitely an element of that, that sacrificial love that we have for our fellow humans. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful testament to you that, I, that you have sacrificed a lot, but you've also helped so many people to be aware of, a, of different options that are out there. Mm-hmm. And you have been the, the voice of this movement. You know, I think most people would say that you are the voice, you are the face of this movement. And so I think that sacrifice always hurts to some degree though, but how important it is that we can, that we're able to pour out ourselves in order to help others is was that was that just kind of a consequence of of this or did you feel kind of led towards towards that love for others i felt led and uh to be more specific i felt called yeah Mm -hmm. throughout history it's clear that those who've made the biggest impact that those have have provided the greatest beneficiates if you will as a concept the best Uh, examples of people providing great degrees of goodwill to mankind they themselves have sacrificed Mm -hmm. it's I think it's part of the mission yeah it's part of human history and you know I went through a series of professional events going I was the most published person in my field in the world in history and I still am I focus on the the interface between heart and kidney disease. I had a very celebrated career. Mm -hmm. I've lectured before the New York Academy of Sciences, European Medicine Agency, National Institutes of Health, Congressional Oversight Panel. Uh, Traveled all over the world. 
uh, uh, published, revered. Uh, it was the endowed uh, named lecture at Harvard in 2018 in two departments. And so great fanfare, my wife and I went, and pictures and celebratory dinners, etc. Wonderful. And COVID-19 hits, I apply every bit of the same skill and excellence and integrity to this illness yeah. and publish to the best extent I can given a wave of suppression against early treatment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Provide, as you did in your practice and we do today, the best possible we care we can to each and every patient. We never turn down a high-risk patient. Never. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never. And um, I've given my best analysis to the media, uh, to under oath in the U.S. Senate twice, multiple state senates and houses of, um, of legislatures. Mm-hmm. And for that, if you were to type in my name on Google, mm-hmm. Dr. McCullough spreads misinformation. Yeah. Dr. McCullough is a quack. Mm-hmm. I went from being considered the top person in my field in the world in history in two years to being a quack, and I can tell you I didn't change. Right. Um, when I testified in the U.S. Senate the first time, November 19th, 2020, under oath, I did the best I could. I prepared a five-minute opening statement, and I fielded questions from the senators to the best of my ability under oath, to the best. And I was focusing on the publications that I published that yeah. were peer-reviewed and vetted. The next day in the New York Times, an editorial appears, and it states that I am a snake oil salesman. Mm. Mm. First question is, how does it appear that fast? Right. <laughs> it was written by the minority sure. witness, and what I started to understand is this is a pre-planned attack. Mm. This is a pre-planned attack against some of the people of the highest integrity. And when other doctors, I think, saw that and said, Dr. McCullough is going to receive this, boy, I yeah. am going to step to the sidelines. Even at this meeting, yeah. I had doctors come up to me you know, in quiet, hushed tones mm-hmm. say, Dr. McCullough, I really like what you're doing. You're really courageous, but I want to stay behind yeah. the scenes mm-hmm. here. I don't, I don't want to personally be injured. I, you know, I have a practice. Yeah. I've even had billionaires privately want to meet with me. Can you meet with me? And I'll meet with a billionaire. And they'll say, wow, I really like what you're doing. Now, we're talking about people who are older. Mm-hmm. Older, they have nothing to lose, whatever yeah. you. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, I really can't come out and say anything myself because my businesses could be injured. Right. Yep. But I do yep. want you to take selfies with my kids. I know. Okay, so they want this kind of interaction, the mm-hmm. celebrity status interaction, but they want to, in a sense, protect themselves. I think what they don't understand is there is a wave of contagious thinking that's going around that is very much in the the mindset of totalitarianism. Yeah, absolutely. The sure. mindset yeah. of, of, of now a massive redistribution of wealth, a massive uh, limitation in civil liberties. Mm-hmm. And yep. the biggest targets that will take the biggest falls will be the billionaires. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. at risk to have their bank accounts drained. They're the, at risk for a unified central currency. They're mm-hmm. the ones uh, at risk for new things that could influence their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, state-owned types of operations. Uh, they're the ones at greatest risk. And if they would step out now yeah. in full support of uh, freedom, we could stop this freight train mm. from just literally, you know, 
destroying our country. Yeah. Well, we just talked about that yesterday, and I think as I think about it, if every single doctor that I know that you know that has spoken quietly and said, I'm with you guys, I'm for you, I love what you're doing in this organization in North Carolina, I love this book you wrote, right? If all of them were actually vocally sharing, standing up for the truth, nobody can be canceled if there's enough people. Yeah. In fact, we had um, at one of the very important meetings we've had, the question was, how do we reach critical mass so that everybody can't be canceled anymore? What is the number? What is the number of doctors? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that if so many of the people that have been quietly on the sidelines, just, I guess, waiting, I don't really know what, if all of them would be willing to just share I'm not okay with this or to say we need to question these vaccines or to say surely there's something better we can do than remdesivir to treat these patients. I wonder what would happen if all of them would have the courage that you and we have had. Yeah and we deal with this on a a different level than what you do but even just within our within our immediate circle and our immediate network it's still that same mindset is that you know, good for you. I'm, I'm, I'm supporting you, but I'm going to do it behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think what most people don't realize, and we've talked about this before too, is that you have to speak out at some point because if if we don't speak out, then the direction that we're heading is going to be towards totalitarianism, authority, you know, just authority and, you know, where, um, everything is dictated from the top down and medicine is not going to be medicine anymore. And, we may even be past that point to some degree because it looks to see the way that doctors did handle this pandemic. A lot of them did just step back and say, okay, we'll let a couple people say some things, but we'll let them get attacked. And, and I think that that's the charge that I, I, I try to have with my colleagues is say, we have to speak out now. We can't wait because if we do wait, then what we're trying to fight against is gonna be that much worse. I mean, a good first step is start to have some open conferences and let's start reviewing pandemic response and uh, vaccine safety and efficacy uh, in an open forum. And Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on in terms of even limiting open discussion, I was extraordinary. Uh, This week I was in Washington uh, on invitation from the American Conservative and we held an open meeting in the Hillsdale unit on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington Senator Ron Johnson, and by invitation, myself, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Robert Malone, the conference was ticketed by Eventbrite, mm-hmm. and people pay tickets to, because we had uh, costs to, to rent the room and the food and everything. And, uh, and at the very end, Eventbrite uh, uh, scrambled everything and messaged everybody saying the event wasn't gonna happen, created confusion, and basically effectively sabotaged the meeting. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, that's what a meeting planner that you're using to schedule and tickets to even have a meeting. Mm. So there's sabotage going on at all levels. And the question is, who's doing this? Uh, what are they doing? There's, there are people who are clearly not wanting doctors and civic leaders to get together and meet and discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is extremely worrisome. This is almost like in nascent Nazi Germany uh, when quickly the brown shirts uh, uh, had this intimidating control and didn't want people to even meet Mm. and talk about what was going on. So people used to meet within people's homes Mm -hmm. in Germany and and just under hushed tones 
try to discuss what's going on. Um, I mm. recently uh, gave a presentation in the backyard at someone's home in Menlo Park, California. Mm. And I mentioned that. I said, you know, during Nazi Germany, we got to the point where we get to, people get together in their houses mm -hmm. or backyards to discuss yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Uh, we can't get together in any public places right now. Uh, many churches have forbidden any type of discussion on this, mm -hmm. uh, either on early treatment or vaccine safety and efficacy. Hospitals have basically just uh, yeah. uh, outlawed it. There is just no discussion mm -hmm. that will ever come up at Grand Rounds or at any right. new conference on vaccine injuries. None. I found None. it really interesting. Wicked goes most years to one of the biggest um, anti-aging integrative medicine conferences in the whole world. People come from all over the world yeah. out to Las Vegas for this conference. And I was sure, I was like, this will be great. Finally, there's going to be some, some sessions on early treatment and mm -hmm. vaccine injuries or even long, long COVID, anything. There was nothing. This whole, I mean, pages and pages of lectures, nothing. Yeah. I can tell you at uh, a meeting um, that was held by uh, a group that dealt with, um, uh, reproductive mm -hmm. medicine, Dr. Tony Gregg, who's the former uh, chairman of obstetrics and gynecology at uh, the Major Medical Center here in Dallas. I was also uh, in a leadership position along with Tony. And so he invited me to speak at this conference. And this was very early on in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I was in a session uh, on COVID. Now the meeting had to do with other aspects of reproductive and genetics and sure. other things like this. Um, but in this session on COVID, I mentioned about you, uh, about repurposed therapeutics. That was my topic. And I was in a, a, a session where there was a discussion of vaccines. And this is before mm. the vaccines came out. And one of the presenters was actually a PhD scientist for Pfizer. Mm. So he was in this meeting. I thought, well, you know, this is, everyone gets to give a fair yeah. point on this. The outcome of that meeting is that Dr. Greg was attacked for hosting that part of the meeting. Mm. Uh, he was uh, quickly accused of being a racist based on some comment that came up at the meeting, not in my session. Hmm. And he had a massive attack on his civil liberties. Yeah. He's had to file lawsuits. He was immediately uh, uh, fired from or uh, taken down from the position of being the president of the American Society of Clinical Genetics. Hmm. And that was early on in the pandemic before yeah. the vaccines. So that told me that it's in the minds of people in academic medicine to hurt other people if they have any ideas outside of what is perceived to be a narrative, mm -hmm. a government narrative. And at that time, the narrative wasn't even articulated. Right. I mean, this was very early on in the yeah. pandemic. And and Tony Gregg and I were communicating. He's like, what's going on? I said, Tony, I have no idea. Yeah. But this is, this is absolutely out of control. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar to much later in the pandemic when I went on Joe Rogan, podcaster Joe Rogan's yep. show. And I went on, and the series there was that Joe Rogan had brought on Pierre Corey and Brett Weinstein. Brett Weinstein mm -hmm. has the Dark Horse podcast. Yep. Brett is an evolutionary biologist. Peoria Corey is a critical care doctor, done a lot of clinical work and scholarship on COVID-19. And they went over the virus and antivirals, largely ivermectin, because mm -hmm. Joe Rogan had just had COVID and right. ivermectin. Yep. 
Then Joe Rogan brought on Sanjay Gupta from CNN. Mm -hmm. And Joe said, you know, you told America that this is only a horse dewormer, but Mm -hmm. in fact, it's a human medicine that has a lot of evidence and support for use in COVID-19. I just finished talking to Pierre Corey and Brett Weinstein. How could you do this? And and Sanjay Gupta was immediately uncomfortable on camera with sure. Joe Rogan. It was actually a very brief interview. Rogan, yeah. Rogan's interviews are typically three hours. <laughs> right. Man. Right. So then next, uh, Rogan reached out to me and said, can you come on? This was in uh, November of 2021. I said, I'm busy. It's Thanksgiving, uh, family <laughs> obligations. And I just couldn't make it until early December. And I said, okay, but when I came on, I was prepared. Yeah. I told the Spotify producers, I'm gonna bring my slides, uh, slide deck that your group saw largely right. when mm-hmm. I uh, presented in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I pre-vetted the slides with the Spotify producers. This, they, they had already been curated and vetted for continuing medical education. And so when I went on with Joe Rogan, we went three hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I went over all the information with Joe Rogan and you know, his, it, he asks questions very carefully. Mm-hmm. He's got an easy voice to listen to, but the main unique thing about Joe is that he listens. He never interrupts and he listens. And then he had his contributions, which is, so when I got to the point about vaccines causing heart damage or myocarditis, Joe is the one who had the vignette of a young woman mm-hmm. who took the vaccine, developed myocarditis, went into heart failure, had a heart transplant, and then died of infection after the heart transplant. Joe is the one who had the vignette. So I had the clinical data, he had a vignette, we covered everything. When the transcript came out on our um, interview, which is a three hour interview, it's interesting, what three hour general media interview is ever listened to Joe Rogan? All the way through. Mm-hmm. Which one actually has a transcript, almost like a deposition, Joe Rogan. <laughs> the, the leading term that Joe and I talked about was monoclonal antibodies since he had received them wasn't covered on the prior uh, podcasts. And then it went through other forms of treatment, the publications, spread of the virus, and then went down, and then far down the list were vaccines. Mm-hmm. Right. But after, my Joe Rogan typically has about 10 million uh, views and listens. Uh, with mine, within a few weeks, we had 40 million. We That's had right. 4X. And their noise started going oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Neil Young, Prince oh, yeah. Harry, uh, President Biden, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, that something happened that Joe Rogan had interviewed someone <laughs> and that there was, quote, <laughs> spread of misinformation. There yeah. it comes again. So as this dialogue started to happen, I messaged out to people. I said, listen, if anybody has any concerns regarding the information uh, presented, let's go over the slides together. Let's go over the scientific data mm-hmm. together and let's have a discussion. Yeah. And I messaged that all the way up to the White House. All the answers came back, well, no, no, it really wasn't uh, any scientific things. The problem was Rogan had said some uh, racial terms in prior podcasts. That's really our concern. Mm -hmm. And so just like what happened to Tony Gregg and the American College of Clinical Genetics, now it happened to Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan was hit based on prior podcasts and his Spotify contract was uh, was threatened and other Mm -hmm. artists said they were gonna go off Spotify. And uh, uh, he got put into a tailspin, but fortunately I had counseled Joe Rogan, just like Pierre Corey and Brett Weinstein counseled Joe Rogan, is don't take anyone's opinion uh, as an absolute. I told Joe Rogan, listen, invite on Malone. Have on Robert Malone, he's one of the inventors of the messenger RNA technology. He saw things going bad. Malone took the vaccines himself. The white's wife took the vaccines. He's gonna give you a fair appraisal. He had a hand in the development of this. 
So he brings out Malone. Malone uh, it gives a, a deep download on yeah. the vaccines. And then Malone tells Rogan, don't stop there. He said, this is somehow leading to some new world order, mm -hmm. uh, right. vaccine passports, uh, centralized control of mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Have on Majid Nawaz, who runs a very popular uh, uh, UK podcast, right. right? So Majid flies over, comes on, on Rogan, and Majid gives, uh, like, and at that interview is worth watching yeah, to see Joe good. Rogan's facial expressions, his jaw drop yeah. when, when Majid points out to him, what is going on? Yeah, so under through, the surface. Yeah, so th through these series of uh, uh, five, uh, four or five podcasts now, Joe Rogan has become part of American history. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's very he interesting has. as yeah. a as a as a podcaster, uh, and as someone who is trying to feel his way along. And, and you talk about courage. I give a lot of credit to journalists who have even done anything to provide a different viewpoint. And yeah. in that category comes Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. When I went on the Tucker Carlson show in 2021, Tucker you know, provided some reaction. He consistently has brought on uh, Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. Tracy Hoke from University of Davis, and others. Uh, he's uh, brought on uh, Harvey Risch from Yale to give different viewpoints. And Tucker's given a fair analysis of yeah. vaccine safety. And you know, why are we doing this? Why, why is anybody actually considering this. Uh, Laura Ingram, who I work with the most on Fox, Laura mm -hmm. has had me on many, many times as a mm -hmm. commentator. And I, just like in this podcast, I try to carefully cite the data, yeah. give a fair analysis on this uh, as a dispassionate doctor uh, trying to help America get through this. Uh, clearly Newsmax, I would t yeah. today I was on with them, Amanda Brilhanti, uh, a wonderful young lady uh, with her associate, and we went over, uh, you know, the, the declaration that monkeypox is mm. uh, a, a national emergency, and is it? Uh, where, where is the emergency out there with monkeypox? And uh, uh, other, uh, Eric Bowling, who has now a regular panel on uh, Newsmax, uh, 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 Real America's uh, Voice. Um, later on, I'm going to go on uh, Lindell TV with Brandon House. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, I went on the war room with Steve Bannon. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Naomi Wolf, former CNN uh, mm -hmm. commentator. It's interesting. You know, you have Naomi Wolf, very much liberal, left meaning, former mm -hmm. CNN commentator. Steve Bannon, former White House strategic advisor on the right, coming together mm -hmm. uh, and now doing programs mm -hmm. together. I think many of us have realized the political spectrum from extreme right to yeah. extreme left really doesn't apply. Many people are just in the middle. Yeah. That we tend in the middle. We, right. we in general, uh, are conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in general people who... Family you know, values. Family and, values, mm -hmm. faith-based, mm -hmm. reasonable people, you know, good people to one another. That's America. Right. Yeah. You know, not these extreme positions. Right. And in my book with uh, John Leake, John points out that there almost is a series of intentional destabilizing events, things mm. to kind of destabilize sure. our society. Not in the book, but in conversation, John has pointed out, for instance, the Me Too movement, and then Black Lives Matter, mm. mm -hmm. and then the pandemic, and then the response to the pandemic, and now suddenly a monkeypox yeah. emergency. The relatively immediate and out of the blue confusion over gender explanation right where did that come from suddenly we're confused mm. and uh, you know there's a clip I was on 
on one of the major media channels where Rachel Levine, who's a White House advisor, uh, is transgender. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe from a woman to a man, I believe, or vice versa. I can't. Man think, to I can't woman, think. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, but uh, her advice, her advice is that children don't receive any gender assignment, that they come through life and mm-hmm. somewhere, uh, you know, in the pre pubertal years, that they choose their gender. And then they undergo a series of surgical and hormonal uh, hormonal manipulations to create the gender that they want to be. Hmm. The, the notion of you know where did that come from? As human beings over centuries and centuries and centuries are you know are a man or a woman. There are some rare genetic mm-hmm. uh, hermaphroditic conditions, but they're very rare. How did that come in and get injected into that? And in preparing for that interview, I actually discovered that the American Medical Association in 2021 officially advises doctors to not give gender assignment on the birth certificate, if you can believe that. Really? I did not know that. Well, I think you you bring up a lot of good points about the destabilizing things that are happening. Because it does seem like it has been one thing after another, and and it doesn't necessarily feel like that's going to, to stop either. Because uh, it does feel like there's more crises, there's there's potential food shortages coming down, energy crises, there's lots of other things that are that are happening, war. So uh, I think we probably should, should wrap it up. But one one way that I would like to try to leave this is that I would like to leave it with some hope, mm-hmm. because it does feel kind of gloom, you know, gloom and doom. Is that all this is bad? All these bad things have happened. All these bad things are continuing to happen. Uh, and you know, for myself, and I know for Emily and. Uh, big part of this is is also understanding that while all these crazy things are happening in the world none of this surprises god mm. that none of this catches him off guard and this is all this is all foreseen and that he's still in control and that we are still coming from a place of victory so what mm. i try to remind myself when i'm you know discouraged at times or frustrated with with things is that i also want to hear when i'm when my time is done, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. You know, I want to be able to, to, to have that discussion with God when, when my time is there to say, you know, what did I do to help his image bearers? What mm-hmm. did I do to help his humanity with the responsibilities and the talents and the people that I interact with? What, what did I do? So I want to, I want to have a, that clear conscience going into that. But also, you know, from a just a father standpoint and a husband standpoint, was I a man of courage? Did I did I stand up? Did I did I do something that I that I could do that was taking a stand for what I believe was right? And will that be something that my kids can can see? Mm-hmm. You know, when 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 we get older and as they get older, to say, look, okay, I think my dad tried. <laughs> my dad did something, you know, good during this time. So I think that that's a, it. Do, it may get it may get crazier. This world may continue to get crazy, but I think all we can do is what each person can do. Certain people can do more. You have done a lot more than almost anybody throughout this, but we all, we all have our part. And if we all play our part, then we can't lose. If -hmm. we're doing what we, if we're doing our part, we're doing our responsibility. There's no winners or losers really here. This is just about, did you do your best or not? And that's what I want to kind of look back through after the fact to say, did I do my best? 
and that I help as many people as I can. And I feel so far we've been, we've been pretty good with that. Yeah. Well, I love what you said earlier, Dr. McCall, you know, you talked about that this was your calling and you stepped into it and how much easier it would have been to not be canceled from all those things and just to say, Oh sure, I'll just go along with it. But you didn't do that. And there are, I don't even know how many tens of thousands of lives that have been saved Mm -hmm. and people that can find hope in this time where we're just told to be afraid and just sit at home and just watch your TV and just will tell you what to do next, which is nothing. And how wonderful to have the message of hope that you've been sharing with millions of Americans and and abroad too. So, well, thank you so much. I'll say in closing that um, I too believe that crises Mm-hmm. And in the course of the Bible, plagues, mm-hmm. plagues. And one could almost interpret SARS-CoV-2 as a worldwide yeah. context of, of, of a plague, the, the virus and the response to the vaccines, in a sense, as a plague. Clearly, it's a worldwide sure. crisis. And both the viral infection and the vaccines are, are part of this crisis. That these can be viewed as God-giving opportunities for redemption, mm. for redemption. Who will take that opportunity for redemption and who will reject it? Mm. And through the course of history, this is very, very important. Uh, one of the commonest, most common phrases said in a benediction when you're done with church service is go out and do good unto others. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree. Everyone needs to say that. In my book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, there's a chapter. It's called The Stripping. Mm. Yes. Where I am stripped yeah. of every credential yeah. by certified letter. I'm stripped of editorships. And it's a hard chapter to read. It it's is. It's the stripping. The stripping. And people mm. have asked me, Dr. McCullough, is it worth it? Mm. And I'll tell you, if I have helped one person, one, mm. it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining yes, us and for really all your work. It. We've This has been such a fun weekend and can't wait to see what the rest of the day holds. So and go get his book. Yes. Oh, listen, I, we spent some time with John Leake, the author, yesterday. He's a true crime author. The story that he tells and how he weaves these different doctors together, the character development, and then he throws in some data. He throws in mm. some history. It's so. It's just so well done. Go get it. It's on Amazon. If that's where everyone buys their books, right? You won't get a signed copy on Amazon, but come <laughs> see Dr. McCullough at an event. So <laughs> thanks again, yeah, thank and you. thanks so much for joining us.